things like dana and love and compassion, they're actually real great aids for concentration. It's not a bad segue. And you can notice this, how easily the mind becomes rapturous when we have a lot of generosity or love or compassion. Even it's surprising with moments of compassion because it might be a really challenging, difficult time being around somebody, let's say, that is in a difficult place. But, but at the same time, you might notice uh, real concentration arising because the mind is like it's in a very wholesome state and wholesome states are inherently pleasant, even showing up with what's difficult and it can feel paradoxical, like, why is this such an enlivening, enriching experience when this person is so clearly suffering? You can even, you'll notice this too when scary things happen, how the mind gathers itself. And then once the danger is passed, you're left with a very concentrated mind. It's very interesting. I mean, this is really a, an encouragement for all of us. You know, our mind all day long is moving from states of relative unconcentration or non-concentration, really dissipated, reactive, weak, unstable, pushed around by experiences, including our own thoughts, but also external sights and experiences, circumstances that come our way. And then other times, the mind is in a more gathered place, space, with a lot of cohesion or integrity. And that coming together, that gathering together of the mind isn't arriving or isn't supported by greed or aversion because that's one way to gather the energy of the mind, get really self-righteous or get full of lust. And, you know, the mind organizes itself around those things. But if you look, you'll see that that kind of concentration is tight. But there are other times, naturally, during the day, where our heart, our mind, the energy of the heart and mind, it's gathered, but it's not that gathering, that coming together. And the beauty of that isn't based on or isn't dependent on greed or delusion or aversion like states of love, states of interest or curiosity, seeing, like the awe of seeing something we haven't seen before. So it's useful to um, have a sense of concentration or what we call samadhi. It's like our birthright as human beings like the mind, whatever it is, it has this amazing potential to construct and inhabit very vivid and real states of hell, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, actually, we, our mind, for each of us, right? I don't know, is there anybody in the room having a mind where your mind hasn't, at least at times, created very powerful states of hell for yourself that you inhabited for a while. And hopefully we've also experienced 
states of mind that are quite beautiful and uh, really light and free and deeply healing. You know, when the mind realizes this potential, then the mind feels really good about itself. If we're regularly constructing negative, unpleasant, unwholesome states and inhabiting them, we have just the opposite feeling of the mind. It's like out to get us. We don't feel like we can trust it. So this part of the Eightfold Path, you know, the Buddha having a lot of insight, having looked at his mind, having, you know, evidently a lot of natural talent, a lot of natural tendencies, qualities of mind that supported his insight into his mind, and then also having a personality that allowed him, or a kind of mind that allowed him to articulate what he saw. So not only having deep insight, but being able to articulate it in a way. You know, he sort of offers this possibility. And so the question is, you know, what are we going to do about it? Jack Kornfield tells this story about a, I think a rather large Buddha in Thailand that um, for as long as anybody could remember in this town was just this uh, covered in earth. Um, And it was quite nice, but it was, you know, just they thought it was made out of clay, the people for generations. And then at some point, I forget exactly what the cause was, but something chipped off. Maybe it was a especially heavy monsoon or something. And there was just a little behind some of the dirt that had fallen off with some gold. So they got curious and they looked and they realized that it was uh, a beautiful golden Buddha, maybe not solid gold, but with you know a real um, veneer of gold. The whole Buddha was quite large and very beautiful, so they uncovered it, of course. And this is, uh, you know, this is a little bit like what happens as we hear the instructions, and we have enough, hopefully, enough time and interest. To unpack it, and it will be different for each person. Some people will come more easily this discovery of what sort of the potential of this mind. Other people will be more slow the uncovering, uncovering. But you know, no matter where we are, how much we're an agitated, our mind tends to be agitated, or tends to be disturbed, or tends to be heavy, or you know. So let's just assume we're the worst one in the room. But applying, like picking up the instructions and applying ourselves, we will see that movement. That's the important thing. Not whether we're that golden Buddha, um, but whether what's really inspiring for the mind is to see by taking up these particular instructions, we can take what we would call an ordinary, dissipated, not-so-happy mind, and we can uncover something quite beautiful and freeing and 
functional. I mean, developing samadhi doesn't make us less functional in life and all the ordinary things in life. It does just the opposite. It makes us a more functional human being. And most importantly, the development of samadhi is the proximate cause for insight. Now this, you know, we have to, we, it's hard to even understand where insight leads. You know, the, we hear things like the unshakable release of the heart. But, you know, we're so used to our heart being bound up, it doesn't even occur to us that it's bound up. One of the real benefits from deeper states of samadhi, concentration, is the mind actually experiences itself free from greed, anger, and delusion. So you could call it a temporary liberation. And this happens even in you know, little degrees. Like when I go from being quite, the mind quite dependent, quite caught up with greed or aversion to being less under the influence of greed and aversion, well, that's the flavor of liberation. That movement is the flavor of liberation. And the whole thing about understanding, deepening our understanding of samadhi, this movement towards unification, towards peace and quiet in the mind, is it, it teaches the mind, it teaches the mind the flavor of nibbana. It's like it, Nibbana, nirvana, it seems so otherworldly, you know, or concepts like not-self. But it's not unworldly at all to go from being really caught up in greed, anger, and delusion to being a little less caught, the mind less influenced by greed, anger, and delusion. So that's the taste, that's the flavor of liberation, And I think the reason we've missed this is because it's subtle, we we feel a little bit helpless, like we've been burnt trying to move in that direction. We end up creating tension in the mind. And it just occurs to us, well, why bother? It's like there's not a clear instructional guidelines for how to do this. In fact, there are, but it, it takes some sustained effort. That's the thing, you know, when we bring the attention to the breath, let's say, you know, first of all, initially, everything that's motivating and sustaining that effort to bring the attention to the breath is probably, to some degree, under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion. So it's like initially the motivation, the effort is tainted by greed, anger, and delusion. So the results aren't so great, but they may be just good enough so that we can begin the process of teasing out the greed, like doing it with less greed, less aversion, less delusion, right? So just go through those. You know, greed would be sitting down and bringing your attention to the breath with an expectation to get something. Well, 
That seems so natural to expect to get. Why else would I be doing this if I'm not going to get anything from it? But that expectation is counterproductive, even though it appears to be very appropriate. And then we get frustrated because having an expectation, nothing's working. Well, that frustration is aversion. That's counterproductive. And then when you give up, that's delusion. Thinking that giving up gets you somewhere is delusion. It doesn't get us anywhere. So it's, even though we may not think when we're sitting every day or when you go on retreat that mostly what we're doing is acting out greed, anger, and delusion, we are. I mean, we just, because if we weren't, progress would be very pronounced and steady. It's truly amazing. I mean, one of the things that happens having practiced a long time is every once in a while I practice without greed, anger, and delusion. And it's amazing how quickly the practice unfolds when the mind is practicing without greed, anger, and delusion. It doesn't... Insight and samadhi is not far away. It's just that we keep picking up the same old tools and getting the same old results. So that's why it's so important to begin our practice from a wholesome place, why attitude is as important as anything. And even before sitting down, it's like revisioning our whole life in terms of like, okay, let me just, just as an act of faith, not even with a lot of conviction, but just out of curiosity more than anything else, let me just assume that the basic problem is ignorance, which manifests as greed, anger, and delusion. So I'm just going to start doing my best to not trust greed, anger, and delusion in terms of making things happen for me in life. So when I'm there eating my meal, I'm, not, I'm going to try to remember not to be acting out greed as I'm eating my meal or as I'm watching the news. I'm not going to believe, you know, fall into the old habit of feeling like aversion, self-righteousness or whatever is appropriate here or that spacing out is appropriate. So this is a whole world of sila that we studied earlier in the year. And then when we get to the place of working with the mind, then it's supported by that just outward commitment, you know, our relationship to the world at large, how we are dealing with all the things that make up our life, feeding the body, interacting with other people. We've already begun to activate our commitment, our interest in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And that's what we bring to the sitting practice then. And all the techniques, hopefully somebody will uh, scan the pages. I sent out an email earlier this afternoon. Um, There's some nice 20 pages or so in uh, Bhante Gunaratana's book that really spells out the instructions for quieting the mind all the way to the nth degree. And so we want to we care enough about this work that we understand that we need the foundation. So we have to live with integrity. We have to live with this commitment, outwardly non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. 
so that when we sit down in this more refined place of working directly with the mind, there's already some momentum towards non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So that when we hear the instruction, you know, to bring the attention to the breath, for example, mindfulness of breathing is one of the many, one of the 40 objects that the Buddha recommends for concentrating the mind, then we're not out of habit going to use greed, anger, and delusion to bring the attention to the breath. We'll find some other motivating force to connect. And when those forces of greed, anger, and delusion or dullness, restlessness, doubt, which are really expressions of delusion, when the hindrances arise, then we know, honey, don't use the hindrances to get rid of the hindrances because it doesn't work. So we, over time, gain skill, not meeting anger with anger, not using greed to motivate the mind, to energize the mind. And it takes some time, but eventually we find a way to be in this more quiet, settled place we call our formal meditation with less greed, anger, and delusion. And then we can begin to experiment with the instructions where we bring the attention to the breath. And it's not the habit of the mind to sustain this mindful awareness, so we practice. And because now we are more settled, we don't have a lot of remorse because we're living without greed, anger, and delusion as much as before. So we feel more settled already. The mind is already a little bit more refined, refined enough to be interested in the mind. That's, you know, when our life is chaos, we're not that interested in the mind. We're just interested in escape, and that's different than being interested in the mind. Being interested in the mind isn't that we have an expectation or want. We just are interested in the mind, how it works. And then it's just in that experimentation, like bringing the attention to the breath, sustaining the attention with the breath, the breath in and of itself, then we notice, like, well, when that attention is sustained, even for a few seconds, we notice something that we call the sort of gathering of the mind or the unification of mind. Like I said, it happens very quickly. We just simply have to stop that restless attention to this and that. And then immediately we notice what it's like when the mind's not doing that. So that's the, and it's that feeling, that experience of letting go. Like Ajahn Chah says, we practice to give up, not to attain. So it's really noticing what the mind is not doing, noticing the effect of what the mind is not doing that draws the mind in. It gets interested in the mind. So the, on one hand, the, sort of the formal uh, or the traditional, I guess, uh, formulation of samadhi is the mind is secluding itself. It's retreating from sense experience. Like when I sit down for my daily meditation... I know, you know, even though my mind doesn't always 
act or live this out, but I know I don't have to work with my to-do list now. I don't need to plan the future. I don't need to think about the past. That this time has been set aside for the mind to know the mind in its immediacy. So it's a very particular investigation. In the same way that, you know, we do this all the time in life. You know, well, when I'm over here, this is what this is about. You know, when we go out to dinner with a friend, it's just common courtesy. It's just like one basic 101 how to get along with a friend. You, you're there with them. You're bringing up an interest in what they're saying. And you're responding, you're sharing your life. So it's together, the activity is you're sustaining this interest in each other. That's what you call hanging out with a good friend. And if you don't do that, you know, it doesn't work very well. So it's the same thing with meditation. We have a very, we want to make sure that when we sit down and do our formal practice, we understand we're really here to use the mind to understand the mind. And in particular, like, what happens, it's like, how do I get the mind to overcome its habit of being externally oriented? Well, here's the great trick, and this is where instructions are really useful. So the Buddha says something like, well, honey, pay attention to the breath, the actual sensations of the breath. That's an external happening. It's not that different than watching TV or listening to the news or talking to a friend. But if, if we pay attention to the breath and sustain that attention with the breath, and we're doing this without greed, anger, and delusion... After a while, the experience of that, um, that simplicity of just knowing this one thing and knowing it in a steady way without motivated by greed, anger, and delusion, that experience then um, is the cause or the sustaining of that attention is the cause for an inner happiness to begin to grow in the mind itself. And there's a sort of a transition point where the sustaining attention with your meditation object has enough momentum that at some point the experience of the mind itself becomes more and more predominant and the attention starts to notice the mind, the concentrated mind, the happy mind, the peaceful mind more than the breath. The breath is still there, whatever it is, subtle or not subtle, however the breath is. And so this is how the mind begins to seclude itself from sensory experience. And instead is the mind is knowing the mind itself. And in this case, it's knowing the beautiful mind itself. So that's a difficult transition because our our attention is usually outwardly oriented, so it's relatively easy for us to connect with the breath, and we tend to hold it a little too tightly and bring a sort of parental energy, and then when we're not getting anything, we tend to not want to do it, so then we do it superficially. So holding too tight, we won't get anything, 
holding, not really gathering, using some object of experience to gather the attention, we won't get anything from the practice of samadhi. So we have to find some way, initially in a gross way, to gather the attention. I mentioned earlier that just in daily life, this happens. Like if something really interesting arises, the energy of the mind just gathers. Or if something beautiful happens, the energy of the mind gathers. You hear a beautiful melody, you know, that mind organizes itself around it. It just knows it. So now we're trying to do this systematically, like how to train the mind to gather itself so that it begins to feel happy. It's the happiness of seclusion. It's the happiness of not being pushed around by other sense experiences, sounds, sights, other thoughts, more mundane thoughts of the past and future, um, sensations. Because the mind is now just knowing this one thing, sustaining with this one thing, feeling really good about the seclusion of just knowing this one thing, and then it starts to notice the happiness of seclusion. And that object of experience has a kind of resonance, like the Buddha discovered in his own life. Some of you, most of you maybe even know this story, but it's a really beautiful story of the Buddha's own practice where some of you know he did very extreme uh, ascetic practices for a number of years, to the evidently to the nth degree, fasting and other kinds of ascetic practices. And um, he just found himself getting weaker and weaker and not really getting the benefits, not, not, not a deepening of insight. So he knew something had to change. And then he was reflecting and just naturally came to mind this memory of himself as a boy. And uh, there was some festival day. His dad was sort of the chief of this fiefdom. It's not clear whether he was a king or was more of a sort of council of elders, probably men, um, who ran this little fiefdom. And he was sort of the chief clans person in charge of this area. And evidently, so he did the ceremonial first plowing, and there was a festival day. They put the little kid under a rose apple tree. Maybe they had a little fence around it so the little child wouldn't wander away. And it just so happens that the conditions were right, that the Buddhist mind got really quiet. You know, it was that probably maybe music, who knows, and festivities, and a young child gets really interested, that sense of awe, not too much greed, anger, and delusion in those moments, right? No delusion because the mind's really showing up. No anger because, you know, there's nothing frustrating. No greed, maybe because having, you know, been a wealthy child or child of a wealthy family, he had always got what he wanted for the most part. So he didn't need to, he knew good things were coming. And he was just... And his mind really quieted down. So instead of the externals, which were the initial object of attention, then the happiness itself became the object of attention. And then that, you see, that's a feedback loop where as the mind pays attention to its inner happiness, it retreats more and more from sense experience. So then 
the inner happiness is arising precisely because the mind is retreated. So then, of course, as it retreats more, there's more happiness. From a gross, exciting kind of happiness, the rapture, to more refined kind of happiness, all the way to a very refined peace. And so, that happened to the Buddha, the I think they say in the tradition it was the first jhana. And anyway, so many years later, now the Buddha, 35 or something like that, has this memory of being a young boy, that happening, and it occurred to him, do I need to be worried? Because remember, he's been doing a lot of ascetic practices, like I don't want to be under the influence of pleasant sense experiences because that just ends up frustrating me because I can't, Make it last forever. There's still birth and death, still aging. So what's the point of having a lot of pleasant food or having a lot of pleasant central experiences when they're not lasting? So he had that mentality about sense experience or sense pleasures being dangerous. Right? That's common in spiritual circles even today. But then his my thought, well, is that pleasant, the pleasantness of a secluded mind, is that dangerous in any way? And then the thought arose, no, it's not dangerous. It's actually very useful. So the Buddha took up this again, this practice of seclusion. And he also dropped his ascetic practices and ate a good meal and sort of stabilized himself and very soon after had his deep insight. And so many, many places the Buddha um, emphasizes the value of this, of um, realizing this inner happiness of a retreated heart, retreated mind. And when you touch that piece, it, uh, it's a kind of happiness that lingers. You know, a lot of happinesses are pretty ephemeral. You go see a really fun movie, let's say a really wholesome fun movie, you know, and it was just a hoot, just pure joy all the way through it. But it doesn't, you know, you leave, there might be a little afterglow, but it doesn't really last too long. Even a nice interaction with somebody you really care about, those very real, they are real happinesses or really real pleasant experiences, but they don't last. But the thing about the peace of a secluded mind that, you know, the really deep states of seclusion, when you come out, it's like your mind's different for a while, even for, you know, with deeper states, like several days or longer, depending on how much you've been doing. So if, for example, if you can conditions allow and you can quiet your mind every day, it's quite a powerful protection because of the calm and the contentedness. It's like getting a vaccine. You know, if we've touched real inner happiness, it's like immunity for the ordinary happinesses. Now, if ordinary happiness comes our way, fine. But if we have to use greed, anger, and delusion to get ordinary happinesses, that's not so good. 
So if you have a lot of immunity because of the inner happiness, then if ordinary happiness comes your way, you say thank you very much. But if it requires me getting greedy or angry, I could say, no, I don't need it because the heart's feeling pretty good. It's, it has its afterglow. And of course, the more we do, the more we understand samadhi, the more quickly the mind can go back to it. Maybe not the deepest states, but just touching, remembering, reconnecting with an inner happiness of peace, of quiet. And eventually, at least for periods of time, it's like even in really difficult moments, it's as if the mind can discern this background of peace, that it's actually not somewhere else. And see, it's this stability that allows for insight. Because then when I am in the crazy situations in my my life, but I have that background of, to some degree, of peace, then I can see something about the craziness swirling around me and in me. So even if the external craziness is triggering my own reactive, my own reactivity, conditioned reactivity in my mind, there's the opportunity to see it for what it is in terms of the three characteristics. It's changing. You know, the reactivity is something coming and going. Any identification with that movement of reactivity is dukkha, stressful, it's heavy, burdensome, and it's impersonal. Now, that insight depends on the stillness of the mind, the peace of the mind. It's the contrast that reveals the changingness, the dukkhaness, and the impersonality of all of the reactive patterns that get triggered normally, naturally, in day-to-day life. That's the deeper liberation. But, but it's important to see how dependent it is on samadhi. Now next week I'll talk, uh, I'll spend some time talking about, before our small groups, the difference between what you might call uh, vipassana samadhi and samatha samadhi. And it's just... Uh, whether you're emphasizing this retreating from sense experience, which is the more traditional samatha style of samadhi, or whether you're in the mix of things coming and going, trying to moment by moment connect in a balanced way without greed, anger, and delusion. You see, this would be much harder. You're not going to get the same quality of stillness but you can get enough stillness to have insight. That's considered a more dry approach to the awakening, the path of awakening, as opposed to the wet and juicy approach of deepening samadhi. And part of it depends on personality, and part of it depends on who you're, what teacher you resonate, what kind of teachers or teachings you resonate with, what you're attracted to. But anybody who's into the practice and has been for you know over a couple years, it really makes sense that at some point, as you're getting the lay of the land, if you consider yourself a student of the Buddha, then it makes sense to take up for a period of time 
a more focused attention to samatha practice, this very intentional deepening of samadhi, where you're really like, what is all this stuff about retreating from sense experience? What can, if I apply myself for six months, a year in my meditation practice, find a suitable object that my mind likes, like the loving kindness phrases or mindfulness of breathing or, you know, or just take up the one that your teacher or one of your teachers teaches and just give myself to it to see for a period of time what I can learn about samadhi. And it doesn't have to be like, I'm going to do this forever, but it's like, okay, either go on a retreat and do it for the duration of the retreat, or maybe start your intensive with a formal retreat just using concentration practice, and then sustain it for a period of months until you feel like you're ready to do something else. But I would at least make a resolve for a number of months, not more than just one month so that your daily practice would really have this flavor. And even though your mind might gravitate back to its old style, you just, with all your skill, bring it back. Honey, no, th- we're going to do this for a while. This is the strategy for a while. This is what, how we're working with the mind. Let's see what can be learned. Let's see if, they, if those guys way back then or those people way back then knew what they were talking about. Whether this is a lawful process or not, like, does it refer to this mind? Yeah, make, maybe it makes sense for other people's minds, but how about my mind? Can my mind get quiet? Can my mind experience deeper states of peace? Can it go from A to B? Well, how about A to C? Well, how about A to F? Well, how about A to Z? You know, is that possible? And uh, I know for the times that I've really given myself to this practice over the years, and I've done it, you know, sometimes... For a couple years, I, I just did concentration practice, and then before that, there was you know periods of time when I would do you know a six-week retreat just doing concentration practice. And in my early years, I did a lot of concentration practice. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, this this respect for the heart of the mind comes up, like to see that I don't need to get my happiness by making, bending the world to my will and getting what I want, you know, which is normally how we think we're going to be happy, making things happen the way I want them to happen. You know, I want to exercise every day, and I'm not going to be happy unless I get my body in shape. So when we realize this happiness is available, is here and now and available, we have a very different relationship to the mind. And then we also realize that that beauty and potential is there in everybody. And it changes our how we relate to other people too. It, it just shifts. I know it did for me. It just shifts this sense. Like we, we might kind of think that there's an inner goodness. And in Buddhism it's very complicated because... For a lot of us, we're shifting from this idea of God and divine divinity being out there or in us, but it's not really us, it's somebody else, to, this, to seeing this goodness as a, a just inherent in nature itself. It's just like part of the fabric of what this is. And you see, that kind of trust is really useful because 
the insight process means a letting go of everything else. So to have some intuition and direct experience about what's inherently beautiful in here and now, you see it makes it a lot easier because the insight process is a process of radical letting go. So knowing that it's all good makes it easier to let go. Because when we don't think it's good, we're a being that wants good. So we're, we're neurotically trying to get good, get something stable and trustworthy. But when we have repeatedly, you know, with our practice, touching beautiful states, it changes that view that it's out there somewhere, it's somewhere else. And so even when we're not directly experiencing it in a deep way, now there's just established in the mind a great confidence that it's here. And the only reason it's not being known is because of certain causes and conditions. These obscurations, like clouds blocking the sun. It doesn't mean, I don't, I still have a lot of confidence the sun's there. You couldn't convince me that the sun's not there. Right? And it's the same thing with the repeated practice. So I'll leave it here. Um, I'm sure there are some people who would like to share from your experience. It would be nice to hear from people what you've learned, your own experiences with samadhi. I'll just get it started. I'll just say one thing. I just, you didn't see this. I just, uh, a good friend of mine, he was uh, interviewed in the Insight Meditation Society's uh, newsletter, and I just saw his face, and he's, he's got a lot of samadhi. I think samadhi is true beauty. And when, when people, whatever degree samadhi people have, to that degree they're beautiful. When you see an animal in samadhi, when you see a human being in samadhi, they're magnetically attractive. It's really true. You'll just see that in people. Once you notice it, and you'll look in the mirror when your mind is settled in that way, and that, that's exactly, and it won't be personal. If you make it personal, it will get in the way of the deepening of samadhi. But you'll see, oh, that's, that's beautiful. A mind that's settled and self-contained, free of greed, anger, and delusion, is beautiful. And that perception of beauty isn't relative. It isn't cultural. It's kind of outside of cultural conditioning. Anyway, the, the story I was going to tell, um, after one of my first Vipassana retreats, and I was so, just so in love and uh, with the practice and inspired. In fact, I did, you know, the big no-no right in the middle of the retreat. I got Wynn on the phone, and I told her to call IMS and register me for the next retreat. Because <laughs> I had my summer free. I was, just, I was teaching school, and I you know, I just wanted to go on another retreat before it was, this was in July, I think. And um, it was a TCVC retreat. And, um, and I just wanted to get another retreat in. So anyway, so anyway, after that first, and I did go off to another retreat. But between those two retreats, I came home, either that first night home or the second night home, just as I was falling to sleep, 
in my mind, you know, just sort of settling back into the quiet that it had found in the retreat. And it was, you know, just this inner beauty experienced as an inner sound and, uh, and a freedom from the body, like not being the sense of me, not being contained by the body, sort of formless, but not in a scary way, just like, like not being burdened by the body. And it was, I wasn't trying to practice or anything. It was just a, an experience that arose. And it's like vivid even today, you know, the memory of, of that kind of experience. And normally we don't talk about these things because, you know, we think people will feel bad or, you know, we'll feel like we're trigger greed or things like that. But it's really important that uh, we don't, we're not afraid of the way the mind is and what's available. Because, you know, if we're not, if we're not interested, we won't look. We won't unpack the practice or dig into the practice. Other thoughts or questions that come to mind? Yeah, Gabe. I just think it's interesting how um, it hasn't really progressed linearly for me, the development of samadhi. uh, The the deeper states that I have experienced were probably after my first long retreat, and then since then, not as deep. but it's still, like you were saying, uh, but knowing that that is possible still gives me faith. Yeah. We have to trust how it's going to unfold. Because one of the things that happens with the deeper states of samadhi is it's like a refinement in sensitivity. So then the mind, the mind that's practicing, the mind that's observing phenomena coming and going, it's more sensitive and it can see more dukkha. And then if the mind has an inclination to investigate the dukkha, then it will t- take up that work. You don't have to, but that could be the tendency of the mind. Yeah, Ann. Um, two things. One, I, I was feeling stuck by greed and I said, well, how did you get out of it before? And I did exactly the same thing, and I, and I couldn't believe that I could track myself out of it. So that was a good feeling. And then I guess I have a question about samadhi, because, you know, you always talk about a, a lessening of the sensory, like the sensory experience. And I feel like the way I experience sort of a unity through the breathing always feels incredibly filled with sensory information. So I don't know if I'm doing it wrong or what, but I, I, I don't, I, I keep thinking, what are they talking about? Yeah, so when, you, when you're with that breath, let's say, yeah. and, you're, and it's really coming alive and it's becoming beautiful, then quite naturally, just with a little encouragement, invite the mind to be more interested, a little bit more interested in the beauty and the joy than the cause for the joy the breath, the movement of the breath, right? So just like you can investigate the breath as a movement of energy, right, why not investigate the joy? Why not get interested in the joy? Something it may be... Essential, isn't it? Huh? It's no? Well, just, just do that... Exp- it's, it's, instead of thinking of it mind versus body or body versus mind, think of it as a refinement. 
So the mind initially is, is fascinated by something relatively gross, and as it's interested in that thing that's relatively gross, the breath, something else arises, the joy of the mind being whole, right? So then you look at the joy. And when you really look at the joy predominantly, then something else arises. The mind gets really happy because there's so much joy. So then you the mind starts to get interested in the happiness. It's a little bit more refined than the, the excitement, the exciting joy. And now there's more like, ah, this is the sukha part. And then you look at the happiness. Ah, ah, ah. And then it's like something really quiet is there because when the mind is really happy, restlessness falls away, even subtle kinds of greed. And that's like really peaceful. So why not look at the peace? So it's just a refinement of happiness. And the thing is, if we're, if we don't, if we're not inviting the mind, we'll just stick with the most obvious thing. So we need a little, a little push, a little instruction to say, well, what about this other thing here? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's interesting too. But well, what about this? Feel it, not see it. Oh, yeah, feel yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry about whether it's seen, heard, or felt, because it will be different for different people. The whole refinement—it's really personal. It's not always the same. Some people see it as light. Other people, it's more vibratory. So it just kind of depends. And I wanted to say one more thing about what you said first, Anne, about uh, uprooting desire and how you, you decided, well, I'll just do what I did before. That's exactly right, and that's exactly the instruction for samadhi. When you do fall into states, the mind gets quiet, then afterward, it's really appropriate. to Now, what did the mind do? How did that happen? It wasn't just accidental. The mind did something. And we can go back, blow by blow, and really... Map it off for ourselves, not with greed or aversion, but just because we're interested and we want to take care of the mind. Why wouldn't we want to map it out? Is it lawful or is it just accident? Do we, does the mind, is the mind capable of discerning the supporting causes and conditions that allow things to settle down? If we did this persistently, we would get really good at understanding what allows the mind to settle down. Doesn't mean we can control all the supporting conditions always. So there are times when it's just things settle, and it may be a while before that happens again, years. And wanting it to happen again is never one of the supporting causes for it happening. And so you, you think, oh, I got all the supporting causes. Yeah, but you have this other cause that's not a cause, which is wanting it to happen. And that's one of the reasons it's not happening. Yeah, Mary. So when you were talking about concentration practice, you talked about loving kindness as one version. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a year. It was really a, you know, a wonderful experience. What are some other examples of concentration? Well, the, the important thing with whatever the technique you use, or I should say whatever the object, the important thing is that you have a set of instructions. So because... The object, whether it's the loving-kindness phrases or breath or different kinds of visualizations or different kinds of meditation themes like the beautiful qualities of the Buddha. Now, for us, not having been raised in a Buddhist culture, it's just bringing to mind beautiful qualities. You know, maybe this person has a lot of gratitude, so we, we think about that person when we think about gratitude, and this person's really generous and 
to think about that, but basically thinking about what's beautiful. So regardless of the particular meditation theme, we need the information so that this, this transition that I was talking about where the mind goes from using the theme, the meditation theme, the anchor, to organize and gather the energy of the mind so that at some point the mind then starts to get interested in the mind itself, the mind that's unified to whatever degree, it becomes the object. And there's different ways this transition is articulated, but usually it involves the five jhanic factors, which I gave everybody. You can play with this list at home. I have more up here, and I think there's some more on the table. But it's the force in the mind or the quality of the mind that connects, that sustains that is joyfully interested, rapture, this sort of, the mind, the heart is held. It's like, it doesn't want to go anywhere. And that's like an exciting, joyful feeling. It's like, the energy is uh, relatively intense. And then that, sort of really being there, that quality really supports the deepening of sukha, the happiness. Because... Now the mind doesn't feel like it has to go anywhere to be happy. It's all here, so it relaxes. So that's more of a relaxing kind of happiness, contentedness, easefulness. And then that leads to ekagata, the stillness. So these five qualities, so whatever theme you use, at some point, right there with the attention to the theme, the mind is also starting to recognize the play of these five qualities of mind. And when they come together, then the mind is now ready for that transition. And, you know, it's sometimes described as a nimitta. I'll talk more about this next week, where the mind basically creates a counterpoint sign or it creates a mental impression or a mental representation of its own beauty, of its own concentration or its own unity. And then that's what the mind pays attention to. So... It makes its own little altar. And then the mind, the attention, looks at that, knows that. And then that just takes the mind into deeper states of concentration. Mm-hmm. We have to leave it. You want to say something, Roger, to end us? Well, maybe quickly adds on to what you're saying. So, you know, you were saying earlier that people have different subtle experiences. So can this nimitta then take on an energetic form? Yeah, that was the case with me, and I, a lot of the teachers, you know, there's one of the problems is that because it's so personal, and because it's so, these are such powerful experiences, teachers often speak with great authority that what happened to them is the way it happens, and so you look at how different people talk about jhana, and it's different, you know, so it's it's good to keep an open mind, like uh, Jack Cornfield. Actually, here's a great little article that's in uh, this book by Richard Schenkman, where Richard interviewed a lot of teachers about samadhi. And uh, he talks about it as a mandala of skillful means instead of this is the way. Because it's very easy to think this is the way. And it's probably why the Buddhist instructions are somewhat metaphorical around samadhi. You know, because he didn't want to nail it down because it wouldn't be helpful to nail it down. And in a way, fortunately and unfortunately, we're all on our own. Teacher's instructions are just a starting point, and we just got to follow our nose. 
And basically, it's the flavor of liberation. I mean, in, with samadhi, it's a temporary liberation where greed, anger, delusion is being put down for a while. But it's real liberation, even though it's temporary. And we need to kind of get the scent of liberation, of freedom, and follow it. And no one will go in the opposite direction, like because we really want it to happen, or trying too hard, or not, not applying ourselves enough. But yeah, I think that the teachers I've studied, they, they talk about the nimitta being different for different personalities. It has to be we're yeah, over. I've experienced it sometimes as the bright luminosity light and sometimes as liberation. Does that seem like I can, I've experienced it in different ways. Does that seem? Yeah, and it, and it seems like it, it, a lot of, it takes a lot of time for that, that counterpoint sign to stabilize. And so that's that art of transition. And we just, you know, we have to play there because a lot of greed will come, get triggered in those in that place because it's interesting and beautiful and that beauty triggers greed. Pleasantness triggers greed. And it's just natural. There's no way around it except to hang in there and keep seeing over and over again that it doesn't help the development of the practice until there's no greed. So we're five after. Let's just take a few seconds to take a breath together. Appreciate all of our spiritual ancestors, the women and men who have shared the fruit of their practice. And now we're the recipients from our teacher, the Buddha, on down. So it's our turn to do the best we can in our busy lives. <clears throat> 